The following is a recording of the Ayn Rand Institute's Philosophy for Living on Earth webinar series. Sign up to attend the next webinar live at bit.ly forward slash ARI webinars. Is There a Rational Morality? By Ben Baer. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Philosophy for Living on Earth, coming to you live from the Ayn Rand Institute. This is a weekly video series which explores big questions about life and about our world today and proposals for answering those questions by applying the ideas of Ayn Rand. My name is Ben Baer. I'm a fellow at ARI. I'm your host this week. And the question we'll be considering today is, is there a rational morality? Why I think this is an interesting question to ask is something I'll talk about in just a minute. But first, a word on our format today. I'm going to give a presentation for about 20 minutes. Then we're going to open it up for Q&A and discussion. Today, I'm going to be joined by my colleague uh, at ARI, Aaron Smith, who's going to be moderating questions, hopefully joining in and answering some of them. So why are we asking this question? Is there a rational morality? Well, it's because there's a conventional view out there among lots of people, ordinary people, sophisticated intellectuals, that holds there is no such thing as a rational morality. And I wanna just give you, start off with a few data points to indicate the view that I am hoping to uh, ask questions about today. When most people think about morality, they think of a set of commandments that's handed down by some God. So you're supposed to not kill or steal because God says thou shalt not. And no real reason is ever given for these commandments. Yours is not to question why. Yours is just to do or to face eternal punishment, basically. That's one very popular view about where morality comes from. Now, not everybody agrees with that view, of course. There are prominent secular thinkers who don't think we should practice or believe in religious morality. They even say that we should practice a, an alternative scientific what they call rational moral code. I'm thinking here about prominent secularists, even atheists, people like Steven Pinker, Michael Shermer, Sam Harris. And what they say is that we should use the methods of science to determine what are the best, the most effective means to achieving moral ends. Of course, that just raises a question. What are those moral ends and how do we decide? Is that something that science itself can determine for us. Well, when you push these thinkers on this question, the answer that you usually end up getting from them is, well, we still need to rely on our feelings at some level. For instance, you have feelings of sympathy for people who are in need. Now, these scientific thinkers will often do things like explain how it is that our capacity for sympathy evolved but of course, you don't need evolutionary science to know that we do experience sympathy. So this really does come down to an appeal to our feelings. And there are critics of this scientific approach who've responded by saying, well, this really does just amount to another way of treating morality as a matter of faith. To think about what that means, I want to take a moment to think about the role of faith in its home, in religious morality. Now, religious morality depends, is, is, invokes faith in a number of di different ways. First of all, you have to have faith in some religious text rather than another in order to know which source of moral guidance you're going to rely on. There are lots of different texts and lots of different codes. Furthermore, you need to have faith that there's a God who inspires these texts and issues these commandments somehow in the first place. Now, I know that there are people out there who will offer what they say are rational arguments for the existence of God, but I myself don't think these arguments actually are rational or that they work. And in any case, I definitely don't think that they're the reasons that people have these beliefs in the first place. They're usually more uh, offered as a kind of after-the-fact rationalization. And they certainly don't show why one should adopt one religious text and its associated moral code rather than another. So I think that what this helps to illustrate is that 
a morality based on faith really is just morality based on a certain kinds of feelings. Faith really is just one kind of feeling. It's not believing in something on the basis of the evidence. Instead, it's wanting something to be true or being afraid to disagree with the uh, conventional view of something or the view of your peers, your friends, your parents. Let's consider just one example of how this would work with, uh, let's say, religious morality. Suppose that you have the view that helping the needy is the right thing to do. Uh, now, in a religious view, the, way you're, the reason you're going to think this is that you feel that God wants you to help the needy. Now, this is not too different from the secular approaches that I mentioned before, which will instead substitute something like, I feel sympathy for the needy. Now, the secular views are very open about the role of feelings here. The simplest is the one that I've just mentioned, that you feel the sympathy. There are more sophisticated views out there who will say, well, it's not just any old feeling that will tell you what's the right thing to do. It's a very special kind of feeling, a certain kind of detached, distant sense of approval or disapproval for the kinds of actions that are that count as good or bad. Uh, and it's also noteworthy that in many of these views, the feelings of other people are central. A really good example here is the utilitarian view that says that what counts in morality is the greatest happiness for the greatest number of other people. So we use our feelings in this view to know which other feelings of others uh, to consider. What's common to all of these views is that both deny that there is any kind of rational basis for morality. Both of these viewpoints, even when they try to base it on science, still tend to think that the realm of science and facts is one thing over here. The realm of values, especially moral values, is another thing over here. And what I want to ask today is why think this is true? Now, it's true that most of the moral codes that we've been offered in history have a rational base. But why do we have to consider those as the only options? Are there no other options? Are there no other alternatives? I want to suggest that there are. So one way to get into this question to get into the issue, seeing what the other options or other alternatives might be, is to first consider ways in which there might not be distance, the, the kind of distance that's thought between science and values in the first place. And a way I want to look at that is to consider the ways in which scientific rationality itself is really just brimming with value judgments to begin with. So a few minutes ago, I gave Sam Harris a hard time uh, for, in his recent work on this topic, suggesting that really the ultimate base for uh, morality is uh, our intuitions or our feelings. Uh, I actually think Harris has some of the best views on this subject otherwise compared to the other people we just looked at. And so I do want to give him some credit for something he says in his book that I think is really good and really important that helps us make progress. Here's what he says. And this is in his book of a few years ago, The Moral Landscape. He says, factual beliefs, like water is two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen, and ethical beliefs, like cruelty is wrong, are not expressions of mere preference. To really believe either proposition is also to believe that you've accepted it for legitimate reasons. It is therefore to believe that you are in compliance with certain norms, that you're sane, rational, not lying to yourself, not confused, not overly biased, etc. When we believe that something is factually true or morally good, and note he says this is true for both of them, we also believe that another person similarly placed should share our belief. I think that this observation of Harris's is profound and really important. And if we think more about what it means and what its implications are, I actually think it's the key to unlocking a fully rational code of morality in a way that I don't think Harris himself fully does in that book. And to understand that, let's consider some examples of the kind of thing he's talking about, about how believing factual propositions actually involves all kinds of value judgments. So we'll start with Harris's own example, believing that water is two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. 
why do people believe this? Well, it started out with uh, Henry Cavendish in 1766, who discovered hydrogen, which he called inflammable air. And he did an experiment to show that when you ignite hydrogen, it forms a substance that looks a whole lot like water. So right there already, I think you see one important value being expressed. Sensory evidence is important. Cavendish wasn't willing to accept the traditional view that held water to be an element that had no parts. He did an experiment to test that view and to see what was actually true. Now that wasn't the end of the story. A lot of people were still really critical of this view. They couldn't believe the traditional view was wrong. And so that led someone like Antoine Lavoisier, who's the father of modern chemistry, to come along and figure out an experiment that could really prove it. He said, well, if water can be formed by combining hydrogen and other gases, uh, shouldn't we be able to take water apart and come up with these same things that we started with? And he did a really complicated experiment to prove just that, to decompose water into hydrogen and what turns out to be oxygen. And I think the value that's being expressed there among others, is that logical consistency is important, right? So if water is made out of these two elements, you ought to logically be able to break it up into those two elements. That's a really important scientific value. Let me give one more major example of this point that Harris raised. And to do it, let's look at what is someone who, by most accounts, one of the greatest scientific heroes of the last few hundred years, Charles Darwin. Consider his argument for the idea that species evolve by natural selection. Uh, Darwin has a very long argument with lots of evidence that he appeals to. He starts with the fact that there's a known cause of biological variation that everybody accepts, artificial selection, what dog breeders do. But he asks then, well, what if similar pressures from a natural source had millions of years to operate? Wouldn't you expect to find lots of evidence that there was even wider biological variation, in fact, distinct species that could be created by this. He then went to look at the evidence in a whole diverse range of different scientific fields, geology, the fossil record, geographical distribution of species, and he found all of the evidence that he predicted. And because of this, he decided only evolution by natural selection could explain all the evidence that we found. One really important scientific value that he's expressing here is that it's really important to look at all of the evidence, that you need to get a picture of all of reality by looking at how different fields of knowledge converge and integrate. But even more importantly, and I think this is the most important for what we're about to consider, remember that Darwin maintained his theory, even though it was an incredibly unpopular one. It made a lot of people uncomfortable because it meant that the traditional view that God creates species separately and distinctly had to be wrong. And here for Darwin, he was making the judgment that truth is really important, even when it's unpopular, even when it's uncomfortable. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's what someone like Charles Darwin was interested in. So what right now I want to take this back to Ayn Rand. She says something in her book, Atlas Shrugged, that I think makes sense of why people like me, and I suspect many of you, regard scientists like Darwin as not simply effective technicians, but as downright heroic. Here's what she says. A rational process is a moral process. You may make an error at any step of it with nothing to protect you but your own severity, or you may try to cheat to fake the evidence and evade the effort of the quest. But if devotion to the truth is the hallmark of morality, then there's no greater, nobler, more heroic form of devotion than the act of a man who assumes the responsibility of thinking. And so I think this is why we judge people like Cavendish, Lavoisier, and Darwin as actual heroes. They assumed that responsibility. So what I want to suggest now is that morality just is rationality in relation to big questions about living. Rationality means commitment to the truth. It means trying to know the world. But why do we need to know reality? Why is knowledge so valuable? Well, what's the source of the value of anything? 
Now, I think there's a much longer story to tell here than I can possibly do in this short presentation. This is something we can talk about more, perhaps in the Q&A. But here, I, I do agree with Ayn Rand's view that it's the needs of living organisms that give rise to the whole possibility and the necessity of talking about value. And so, yes, if you want to live, you need to acquire knowledge. If you want to be in reality, you need to study reality. This importance for living of rationality is precisely what morality underscores. And to flesh out this point, I want to consider some commonly accepted examples of moral virtues. Let's consider three or four. Consider, for instance, honesty. Now, I'm, it's really important here that honesty is not just telling lies. It's, it's, it's not just about not telling lies. It's about facing the facts for yourself as opposed to substituting fantasies for facts. Now, I did a whole other webinar on this topic. It's called Why Be Honest. You can look it up on YouTube. I go into much greater depth there. But I hope that when you bring in this perspective on what honesty is, when you consider honesty as an intellectual practice, not just a social practice, that you should see it's almost identical to the issue of rationality, just with a slightly different focus and different perspective. It's looking at the facts as opposed to faking them. Or consider the widely accepted virtue of integrity. Integrity is the idea that we should practice what we preach. But here it's important that we don't give moral credit to just anyone who practices what they preach. If someone like Hitler believes strongly in racism and genocide and practices it, we don't consider him to be a man of moral integrity. We do consider somebody like Frederick Douglass to be someone who has great integrity. He believes in freedom and then he fights for it. First of all, for himself by escaping from slavery and then for other people by advocating for abolitionism. I think what this shows is that integrity is a kind of rationality. It means being willing to act on your rational principles, being willing to act on the knowledge you have rationally acquired. That's what makes the difference between someone like Douglas and someone like Hitler. Independence. Now here I'm not just talking about living by your own means, but thinking for yourself. This is literally the moral virtue that we think these great heroic scientists practice, whether they're Galileo or Lavoisier or Darwin. Independence is the idea that you need to think for yourself as opposed to believe dogma. Rationality means thinking for yourself. There's no other way to think. Other people can't do your thinking for you. If you simply absorb their views, you're only parroting them. You're not actually doing thinking. You're not engaging in a rational process. One last example. Justice, another commonly recognized virtue. Justice means giving each his due. It means rewarding people's virtues and punishing their vices. But I hope by now you should see that this is just an application of rationality to the assessment of other people's character. It says face the facts about other people and then with integrity act on those facts. So to start to wrap this up, I want to give you just one last quotation from Ayn Rand in Atlas Shrugged, where I think she points to how difficult it is to even separate the issue of rationality from morality in the first place. Her view is thinking, that is rational thinking, is man's only basic virtue from which all the others proceed. And his basic vice, the source of all his evils, is that nameless act which all of you practice but struggle never to admit, the act of blanking out, the willful suspension of one's consciousness, the refusal to think, not blindness, but the refusal to see, not ignorance, but the refusal to know. It's the act of unfocusing your mind and inducing an inner fog to escape the responsibility of judgment. Remember, it's the responsibility of thinking that these great scientists assumed and which many of their, many of their critics were trying to escape. So I'd started this conversation with the question, is there a rational morality? What I, want, what I want to suggest now is that really the tables should be turned here. The real question that we should be considering is how could there be any other kind of morality? How could there be a non-rational morality? The kinds that have been offered have no uh, bearing on 
the reality that we're trying to live in. That's what rationality is for. And let's just return to one last example. We'll go back to the example that I started with. Uh, the, the common view that helping the needy is, is, a, is a moral duty and an imperative. Uh, and many people offer their sympathy as their reason for doing this. This is an expression of the view, of course, that morality can only be based on feelings. But what I want to suggest now is that if you think this is all morality can do, you end up ignoring or evading all kinds of important facts. First of all, it ignores or evades the cause of the feeling that you're having in the first place. It's not that we have these feelings that came out of nowhere uh, and now we should base our value judgments on them. It's quite the other way around. The reason that people think that helping needy, sorry, the reason that people feel sympathy in the first place is because they already think that it's important to help the needy. If they didn't think that, they wouldn't feel that way. And you can do all kinds of experiments on yourself to see that this is the case. Furthermore, when you then enclose your thinking about morality in this little circle where you treat your emotions as just givens that can't be challenged, you end up ignoring all kinds of facts that are actually relevant for assessing the judgment in question. Like, what does this person actually need help for? What do they need the money that you want to give them for? Do they need it for drugs? Or do they need it to get a job? And what do you need to help them to achieve that for? To avoid the feeling of guilt or to actually add value to your life? I'll close with one more reference to a beggar. But this is a beggar who appears at one point in Ayn Rand's novel, Atlas Shrugged. And someone asks him the question, what is morality? He responds, judgment to distinguish right and wrong, vision to see the truth, courage to act upon it, dedication to that which is good, integrity to stand by the good at any price. I think that this beggar is on to something. But as you'll see, he says at the end, where does one find it? He doesn't know because in most of history, no one has ever bothered to make a connection between the concept of morality that he displays here and the operations of heroic rational scientists, which we should try to exemplify. Okay, uh, close with a few uh, suggested readings. Made several references today to Atlas Shrugged, uh, not just to the, uh, the big speech, but even to uh, parts of the story. Uh, Ayn Rand saw this novel as uh, demonstrating the theme of the role of the mind in human existence and the demonstration as a corollary of a new rational code of morality. That's what the book is really all about. If you want a nonfiction version of her argument for this, it's good to take a look at The Virtue of Selfishness, uh, a shorter nonfiction book of hers. In that book, I suggest especially taking a look at her essay, The Objectivist Ethics. There's a brief little link to it if you want to look it up now. Um, also, I highly recommend a length, uh, another essay uh, by the senior fellow at ARI, Ankar Gatte. This is in our journal, New Ideal. Uh, you can look up Finding Morality and Happiness Without God. Uh, I think it explores uh, some of the same points I looked at today in greater depth. Otherwise, I'd like to remind you about next week's webinar. This is going to be featuring a member of ARI's board, Dr. Harry Binswanger. He's going to be looking at the question, why capitalism? Certainly a relevant question today when everyone's looking at alternatives. I, uh, we're going to open it up for Q&A very soon. But before we do that, I do want to uh, put a poll up for those of you who are in Zoom. The reason that we do these uh, webinars is to try to reach new audiences. And so I want to see how many of you have uh, various degrees of familiarity with Ayn Rand's ideas. So I'll put that poll up and leave it for you to, to look at as you are watching on Zoom. If you have other questions you think we should consider for these webinars, please send us an email, webinars at einran.org. We definitely look at all these emails and we've, do, we've done several webinars already on the basis of questions that listeners and viewers have submitted. Otherwise, I think that's everything I've got. And so now is the time for you to start to submit questions. I'm gonna be joined momentarily by Aaron Smith. I'll just let you know if you are in Zoom, there's a special Q&A module where we would prefer that you submit the questions. Just hover over your screen, hit the Q&A button, a module will pop up, please submit them there. We will take a look at those questions. If you are in social media, uh, whether Facebook, YouTube, or Periscope, please 
plug your questions into the comments sections. We're also monitoring those and we're going to try to answer as many of them as we can as well. So, uh, Aaron, are you out there? Uh, it's often said I'm out there. <clears throat> I'm here. Um, hi, Ben. Uh, let's let me start with uh, one question that uh, I just want to pose. Um, what's so wrong with basing a morality on feelings? I mean, particularly if those feelings uh, uh, have a universal basis among human beings. Well, this is a question that I was uh, that I only just started to answer really toward the end of the talk, but to dig a little deeper into it, the issue here involves thinking about what feelings actually are and where they come from. Uh, the point here is not that feelings are irrelevant, it's not that they're bad, it's not that we should all be like Spock or something like that. It's that they have a specific function in human life and it's important to be clear on what that function is. Their function is to motivate our action and they do a really good job at it. Uh, but their function is not to give us knowledge of reality. They are not, as Ayn Rand put it, tools of cognition. And that's because the feelings that we feel, and this is something I said a little bit about, are really just reactions to the thoughts, the reactions to the world in light of the value judgments we already have. So if I already thought that a particular per person was worthless, had put himself uh, into uh, trouble uh, by making a whole set of foolish decisions, I th it, you, at a certain point, you lose sympathy for this kind of person. You don't have it anymore to have as a basis for your feeling. And so if you do feel sympathy, it means you do think the person deserves help. But then the question you should ask yourself is, well, why do I think that? What reasons or evidence have led me to believe that? Sometimes there are good reasons, in which case you should let that feeling motivate you. Sometimes there aren't, there are bad reasons. You know, so if, if, if you're just looking at the person and their face looks all mopey and that's the only reason you feel sympathy, you don't know what put them into the position of looking so mopey, uh, that might not, that's, that's probably a hasty uh, uh, judgment that you're jumping to. But if you, yeah, they look mopey and then you ask out what's the situation. You also know that they're your friend and they mean something to you and they, they're the victim of circumstance and they know that if you give them help, uh, they're, you're, they're, they're going to do good things with it. Then uh, you'll feel sympathy. You should let your sympathy motivate you in that case. Okay. Let me uh, ask a question from Steve. This is coming in from Zoom. Um, is it true that Rand's ethics, I'm reading from the screen over here, is it true that Rand's ethics, which seems so contrary to most ethics of today, is in fact quite similar to some of the ethics of the early Greeks? Well, this is something I'm sure you can say a fair amount about yourself, Aaron, since you know more about Greek philosophy than I do. But I would say that it's true that there are some real similarities. Uh, the most obvious person to look at is Aristotle, who actually held uh, that the virtuous man is a lover of self and who also had a similar view about the relative relationship between reason and emotions and making judgments about what's the right thing to do. Uh, he wasn't quite exactly the same as Rand uh, in any number of ways. Uh, for one thing, he, it's not clear that he thought that the uh, uh, what makes something moral is that it's in your interest. He thinks that what's moral happens to be in your interest, but uh, he doesn't make the same kind of conceptual connection between these two uh, as as Rand does. But uh, to take a step back from that, um, it's, it, it is important also, I think, that uh, since the topic of today is the rationality of morality, that for the most part, Aristotle thought also that you could give a kind of rational demonstration of uh, what uh, what moral virtue is. He gives this human function argument. Now, there's all kinds of questions I think you can ask about how good that argument is uh, and whether he consistently practices the rational principles of argumentation uh, that he otherwise champions. Um, sometimes it looks like he's just looking to what is it that people in his society regard as virtuous and sort of encoding that in his principles. But uh, overall, I think uh, he does have a rational methodology in his ethics and in, as in the rest of his philosophy. And that is one thing. Uh, he is a data point that's often ignored historically by the people who say that uh, there's no possibility of having a rational approach to morality. I'll just add one little 
point to that is that <clears throat> predominantly in Greek philosophy, so this is a, I think, I think the important thing is it's not that it's Greek so much that it's pre-Christian. Uh, and that what I, what I think is a lot healthier about the Greeks approach to morality in general was that uh, morality, uh, as they thought about it, was trying to formulate a view of what the best human life looks like, how to live the best life possible, and then what kind of virtues you'd need to develop in your character to make that possible, what kind of approach to life would you need. It was never about trying to get to another dimension. They didn't learn, yearn for the afterlife. Uh, th their gods didn't actually give commandments. Uh, so it was, I mean, they did things to people sometimes and you, you knew certain things upset them, but they didn't give a list of commands. There was no sacred text that you had to adhere to. It wasn't ideological in that regard. Um, and so it was really about how to live the best life. And I think that's incredibly healthy and that's a relationship to Ayn Rand. Um, and I think when people are looking for a secular view of uh, conceptions of morality, I think one of the things they're looking for is maybe secular is not quite some are looking for secular, but some are just looking for a pre-Christian approach um, in this regard, which I think is healthier. Um, let me ask another one of my questions and I'll jump back to one of the attendees questions. Um, one of the major obstacles uh, for putting forward a rational morality has been this is-ought problem. Uh, and it's thought to be, by many, to be sort of insoluble. You can't get beyond it. Uh, Rand doesn't think that. Rand thinks there is a way of getting around that or answering that. Can you say a, a word about that? Yeah, so I can say several words. Uh, one is that <laughs> one of the points that I touched on in the presentation, I think, is, the, is one of the first things to say in response to this worry. The, this is the section of material on how scientific rationality already involves all kinds of value judgments. So the assumption that people make when they think there's this division between is and ought, between fact and value, is that science, that scientific rationality, just goes out and it describes the, the facts and doesn't make any kind of evaluations of them. And it's true that it doesn't make certain evaluations of them. But in order to even figure out what the facts are in the first place, science has to be operating on the basis of a whole set of cognitive norms, like the ones uh, that I tried to illustrate in my talk. There's more to be said about this. Uh, rather than dwelling too much on it, uh, I, I just want to point out, I've recently done an interview with uh, Harry Binswanger, who's actually going to be on our webinar next week, on this very topic. And uh, the video of the interview is going to be released, I think, next week. Uh, and Dr. Binswanger is someone who's written on this very question. He does a really good job taking apart the arguments that are given for the idea that there's an is-ought gap. And rather than say more, I think I'd rather uh, let him uh, say more when that video is released. So I, I recommend that people look forward to it. It's coming out pretty soon. Good. I look forward to that. This is good. Um, so here's a question. So Pete, uh, this is coming from an anonymous viewer on Zoom, and it has to do with, you know, you made some points about some of the problems with a religious morality or appeals to God and so on. And the question is that people often resort to turning to God, quote God, uh, when they are facing extreme hardship or at the end, they're at the end of their confidence in life. What does Ayn Rand's morality offer someone at that point? It's a fair question. And somebody actually asked me a question quite like this at a conference that I was at recently. And uh, let me actually share the version of the question because it's like the even harder version of the, this question to answer. And the person said, I've been an atheist all my life. I don't believe in a God, but someone very close to me is dying. And I'm so tempted to, to believe that, you know, maybe someday uh, in some other dimension, I will get to meet them again. And, and what can you, uh, what can you tell me? Uh, like, and he's also asking like about comforting the other person in this time and what can you tell them? And it's a difficult question, but the main response that I had to it was in a way it's when the chips are down and you're in a kind of crisis situation and some of your most important values are at stake. It's in just these kinds of situations when it's most important to 
to keep a level head. I mean, think about this. Suppose you're the one who's who's dying and you don't have much and you know that and you, you don't have much time left on earth. Well, all the more reason that you need to face the facts and figure out what to do with the time that you have left and how to, you know, plan your affairs and uh, how to how to maximize the time that you have with the with the people that uh, that you love. And that requires facing reality that that's something that you're not going to be able to do effectively if you if you create some kind of illusion for yourself, like, oh, I'm not really going to die. Or if I die, I'll, uh, I'll get to see my friends in another dimension. If you don't, then you're wasting the time that you have left. You have one life to live. And being rational is the way to make the most of the, to- the, of the precious time we have on Earth. Yeah, because you could put the question the other way is instead of what does Ayn Rand offer you, what does religion offer you? Well, it offers you escape from the reality that you have to deal with and offers you a fantasy as a substitute. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it really comes down to the, the, the it really comes down to the, the fact that religion does no better than drugs or alcohol or uh, any number of other destructive escapes. So here's a question. This is a question about the relationship between reason and feelings in how humans developed. Uh, And this is a question coming from Sally on Zoom. Uh, I'll try to shorten it a bit. It's um, you've made the point that, you know, rationality should be rational. That should be first and feelings are not what you go by. She says, if rationality must come first, human beings would never have developed any moral sense or sensibility. Rationality is a highly developed thought process that grows out of civilization. Feelings, on the other hand, are biological. They must come first. Uh, So our non-human ancestors developed the primitive beginnings of morality with feelings. So feelings seem to have to come first. Reason seems to be like a later complex development. Uh, Doesn't, and the implication seems to be, doesn't the priority then have to be toward feelings? Understood. That's how I read the question. Yeah, so it's an interesting question. What's very true and important is that non-human animals have an emotional capacity just like we do, and they have it without having our rational conceptual capacity. However, just like with human beings, uh, animals also have a source of knowledge. Now, they don't have a rational source of knowledge. They uh, their knowledge mostly comes from perception, uh, from experience, and uh, I- and some of it is perhaps uh, built in. But the emotions that they experience are work in the same way as ours do. They experience fear. For instance, an animal experiences fear when it perceives the presence of a danger. Uh, now, unlike animals, we ask questions about what appears to be the case. We can ask questions about whether the knowledge that we think we have that leads to this feeling is accurate. So it's true that we have an emotional capacity that's built into us, just like animals have an emotional capacity that's built into us. But it's also true that our emotional capacity has knowledge as its input. And what's different for us is that the nature of that cognitive mechanism is different. It can make mistakes. It, we can make wrong choices that lead to errors and delusions. And so, yeah, we're going to experience emotions automatically without being able to control it. And that's just the way that our nature programs it, us. But the reason that we experience the particular emotions that we do is because of these very unique cognitive inputs, which are different from animals' inputs. And as a result, we have the power not only to control whether we, are, we allow our emotions to motivate us, but we also have the power to think about, inquire into, and check the assumptions behind the thinking that lead us to experience the particular emotions that we do. And so even though we can't control them in the moment, we can control them over the course of time. And I go back to that example I gave about sympathy. You might initially feel sympathy for somebody uh, because they just look down and out. But then when you find out new things about them, like you find out that they're the ones who put themselves into this situation, you stop feeling that sympathy. 
Okay, let me ask a question coming from Kate on Zoom and she puts this in two different ways, but it's a good question. Um, how do you know that your values are rational? And then she puts, how do you judge that your values are good? I mean, I think they're similar questions. I mean, it's a huge question. And in a number of ways, it's, it's the big question that this whole uh, session is about. So like I, like I said earlier, there was, there's more to be said about how, where values come from in the first place at all. And I'll say a little bit more about it. So it's Ayn Rand's view, and I agree with her, is that it's only because we're living organisms that questions about what we should do, about what would be good for us to do, about what we need to do, come up in the first place. If we, if, if, if the universe were populated entirely by inanimate objects, rocks and sand and mountains, uh, it would make it would not make any sense at all to talk about what would be good or bad for them. Uh, talking about what's of value to something presupposes that the entity in question is acting in the face of the possibility of going into or out of existence. That there are things that it can do that will allow its existence to continue. Versus, you know, the rock, which no matter what happens, it's going to. I mean, there's nothing it can do to stay in existence. All that it needs to be, uh, all that it needs as it were, is to be protected from external elements. Questions about good and bad come up because there are good and bad things that certain entities can do to maintain their existence. And so that's the argument for why it is that life is the source of values, that an organism's life is its standard of value. And then to figure out which particular things are of value to an individual organism, uh, you then, you first of all need to know what kind of organism is it? Uh, is it an animal or is it a human being? If it's a human being, we've talked about how one of the most important things for a human being is its rationality. So your values uh, need to preserve and enhance your major tool of survival, which is your mind. Now you're not going to be able to uh, take that principle and deduce from it all of the different particular things that are going to be good or rational for you as an individual. What it allows you to do is to narrow down all the possible things that you can choose in life uh, to the range of things that are good for you, uh, excluded from the range of things that aren't. And within that range, uh, there are going to be optional values. But uh, what, what philosophy is for and what morality is for is for identifying the range of things that are good for your life and then allowing you to make a choice within that range. Okay. Um, let's see, we've got a question from Rupert. Um, now I forgot where this came from. I think it was uh, on Zoom. Um, it seems to me, here's the question. It seems to me that I'm aware of a desire to help the needy without really having any clear idea of any cognitive process of judgment underlying that desire. Like you just experience it. Uh, am I to understand you think I should take that as a sign that there's something wrong and that I should seek for what cognitive judgment underlies this desire and confirm it has a rational basis? Question mark. Well, Rupert, I'm not going to say that there's something wrong with you as a person necessarily. Uh, but I do think that if you have that feeling, and especially if you find yourself really wanting to act on it in particular cases where you haven't looked too closely into the case, then yeah, there is uh, something that you should think about. And, and in particular, I think that's because a lot of people who report the kind of feeling that you have, very often, it's not even so much caring about the person in trouble that's motivating it. It's often more being worried about what other people are going to think if you don't. Um, and I know people who are quite the opposite. So there's something, you know, special to your case here, Rupert. This is not a universal condition. I know people, I won't mention them. Uh, I know several people who tell me that, uh, that when they walk by uh, certain uh, unfortunate people uh, on street corners, they feel more sympathy for the pets that the person has uh, and uh, would very much like to help out the pet because how did this pet get to be in such a terrible situation. Now, whether that's itself the right 
response is an interesting question, but my point in giving it is simply, there is a really diverse array of responses that people have to these kinds of situations. Uh, and you can't take your one situation as, as kind of indicative of human nature. There's, uh, we have a lot of different emotional responses to the same situation. And, the, and, and I think that's because we have different ways of thinking about it. Yeah, let me just add a point to that, that um, the way the question was worded was, um, you experience a desire to help the needy, but you're not aware of any cognitive process of judging uh, judgment underlying that. Should you figure out what's underlying that? Yeah. I mean, if you're going to try to act on your feelings, you should know what they're based on. You can't take them as just an absolute guide in some sense and you fly blind because they're, because they're just experienced. So, so go, go for it. That's not the right way to live. It's not rational. But it's, not, it's also not weird at all that you would experience some sort of feelings of sympathy towards someone in need. I mean, you're a human being, for Christ's sake. You know, I mean, it's like, you know what it means to live, to feel pain, to suffer, to experience joy. And you see somebody in a really debilitated state. I mean, yeah, I mean, and that don't want to see, I don't want to see people in that condition. And I may even blame some of them. I mean, you think some some of the people are in that condition because their own choices and they 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 need to bear the responsibility for that. Yeah. That doesn't mean I want to see people like that. I mean, it's like and then many don't really deserve it. And it's, you know, your heart and even even the hot take that you get in a situation like that, if you see somebody looking down and out and you feel sympathy for them without knowing anything else about their life, that's still a response based on some knowledge. It's a response based on what you see in the immediate situation. It's not just a desire that's hanging in a vacuum. And then if it turns out that that little bit of knowledge that you have about what you see in front of you actually does turn out to be representative of the wider facts about their life, then your sympathy was on to something and it, it can be a, a good thing to allow it to motivate you to help. In a similar question, uh, because it has to do with the immediacy of a certain kind of uh, response, it's coming from Nancy on Zoom. The question is, can intuition uh, be characterized as moral or immoral, or does it belong to a completely different sphere? Like, how do you char characterize when people talk about their intuitions? Well, I want to ask a question about the question, because the, the major thing here is, well, what is an intuition even supposed to be? Uh, it's a term that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Sometimes in more ordinary usage, it's used to mean a kind of mystical insight into another dimension. Uh, when philosophers, including people like Sam Harris, use the term, what they mean is something like your initial reaction to a object or a question. And Let's assume, let's assume that this is what Nancy means by it. Then I would say, look, having the intuition, if, if all that is, is your kind of initial knee-jerk reaction to something, having that reaction is it's neither moral nor immoral. It's, it's a reaction that you have. It's more or less, I think, the same as an emotion, but perhaps an emotion that someone is using then to form a snap judgment about a question. And it's not moral or immoral to form a snap judgment. You can't help but form snap judgments. And it's a good thing that we do form snap judgments. It can be useful in certain circumstances. The point is that you shouldn't treat the snap judgment as true just because you have it. The fact that you have it maybe is a sign of something and it's then a reason to look further into the evidence concerning the question that you have. And you might end up deciding that your snap judgment was right, but that's something that you have to decide based on the wider context of your knowledge. Like in the case of Darwin, seeing how the initial hypothesis can be confirmed by all of the other evidence that's available to you. So let me ask, I'm gonna push on a few things that have to do with, you know, really advocating a rational morality which is it's many many philosophers have claimed to offer a rational morality uh, but their codes are different how do you avoid the conclusion that this is kind of all subjective like how do you figure out like is it a really a rational code of morality i mean it seems like lots of people have offered that utilitarians i think would think think of themselves as we're offering a rational morality we have an end here and these are the calculated means to get there um and many other philosophers and but they seem to have all sorts of different systems. Like, why do you make sense of this stuff? Yeah, so 
the first thing to say is, and I alluded to this in the presentation, is that uh, many of, I wouldn't say all, but many of the systems proposed by philosophers that are supposed to be codes of rational morality, well, they aren't really. And what I mean by that is not simply that I disagree with them. What I mean is that they don't actually see our reason as the ultimate foundation of our knowledge about moral truths. And the example of utilitarianism is a good example here because uh, first of all, um, when someone like John Stuart Mill, and he's not the only utilitarian, but when someone like John Stuart Mill argues for that view, he begins his argument by saying, ultimate ends are things that are not demonstrable by rational argumentation. And so the only kind of argument that you can give for why something is valuable is that we actually desire it. Now that's Mill's own admission that he is basing his view of why other people's happiness, why our happiness and why other people's happiness is a value is because we like it. So that's one point, and we could talk about other versions of utilitarianism, but I think ultimately it usually comes down to the same kind of point. One point is that many of the moralities, many of the moral theories and codes that have been offered by philosophers as being rational codes, uh, when you dig down to the foundations of those codes, don't really think that you can get rational knowledge of what the ultimate moral ends are. But then another point I would make is that, yeah, it's true, even among philosophers who've, let's say, done a better job uh, at identifying the foundations of morality, there is disagreement about then what the most rational set of virtues is. Um, but I would just say on a point like this, that it's a difficult question and you shouldn't expect philosophers to get the answers right away. You shouldn't expect them to agree right away. And in part that's because Questions about morality are, are very abstract. Uh, they, they try to answer a question about the entire scope of our life, about human nature as such. And in any scientific field where you're asking big abstract questions, you always initially get serious disagreement among the scientists who are trying to settle these questions. Here I often give the example of uh, the atomic theory. So the existence of atoms, everybody learns about these in kindergarten now, and they just assume uh, as they're part of the furniture of the universe that everybody always knew about. But I mean, in point of fact, the idea that there are these tiny unobservable entities that are the building blocks of all nature was tremendously controversial, even among the most sophisticated scientists well into the 19th century, well into the end of the 19th century. It wasn't really until the beginning of the 20th that there was any agreement that you could prove the existence of these things. And so if that's true about the atom, I think I would expect it to also be true in spades about uh, philosophers coming to an agreement about a rational code of morality, not only because it deals with uh, a very abstract subject matter, but also because unlike with questions about atoms, the moral code that you act on and advocate and adopt is intimately bound up with your self-esteem People have invested a lot in what they regard as right and what they regard as wrong. And so you know, there's even more room for defensiveness about uh, what's the right way to live on this kind of question. And even more room for people to then dig in their heels and be stubborn uh, and disagree with other people than there is on these other scientific questions. So you should totally expect and predict that there's gonna be disagreement among philosophers. And so then the question is just, let's take a step back. Let's look at the controversy identify who's got the starting points in their thinking that you regard as the most rational and then pursue that lead from there. Yeah, and there's a difference between someone saying they're offering a rational code of morality and what they mean by that is they're not trying to appeal to faith and mysticism and so on. They're committed to uh, like offering reasons and trying to establish and validate their reasons. And that's one thing. There's another thing to think that they got it right. Like, in other words, you agree with their, their judgments and, their, uh, and the way they validate right. it. And this is a logical justification. But you, each individual has to figure out what you think about that. You have to use your own reason to establish that. It's not like, well, who's going to tell me? It's, no, it's like, what do you think of their reasoning? Yeah. Are they basing it on facts? Is it following a logical method? Does it make sense? Does it integrate? And so on. 
and you know there's no there's no way of getting around the idea that each of us has to figure that out for himself about what views are being offered um another question because it relates to again to reason and emotion this is a, another anonymous viewer uh, maybe the same on zoom <clears throat> many high achievers offer that they consider all the evidence but if their gut feeling tells them yes or no they defer to that it implies the churning in their stomach signifies something some something beyond immediate reality that has to be taken into account and should prevail so it's the person who follows the evidence but you know, this is we're talking about high achievers and but will often go on their gut as if it's somehow more immediate more direct source of knowledge so this is a real phenomenon and it's worth thinking about but i would dispute the way the questioner is characterizing it as signifying that there's something beyond immediate reality um it's true that one important thing here is that we often need to act in the face of uncertainty that we have a lot of evidence that points in one direction let's say but you know it's most of the evidence so some of the evidence points maybe in a slightly different direction but you don't have all day or all week to sit around and wait for even more evidence to come in sometimes you have to act and the fact that this person's asking about high achievers so like this is something that people in the business world have to deal with when you're running a business you know and and trying to make a profit and keep people employed and stay you know uh, keep up your standard of living. You have a lot of questions you have to answer before you have time for the all of the evidence to come in. And at this point, yeah, you sometimes have to act on the basis of probability, which is acting on a lot of evidence. Uh, but also, you will sometimes have to go on a hunch. But that doesn't mean that you're being irrational. It means that you trust yourself. It means that you've you know something about yourself that 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 you're experience in life has honed your decision-making ability about certain kinds of things and you've got as much evidence as you can get and on the basis of that you've got to go forward but that's still going on the basis of the evidence that you have and on evidence that you have about yourself and you might still be wrong <laughs> you might still it might be a major screw-up on your part but if you're the if you're a rational person who's who's using in effect a rational hunch, you'll you'll quickly realize that and you'll do whatever you can to correct. Yeah, it's relevant that the person the questioner put it as these are high achievers. Totally, these are relevant. people who have been tremendously successful. Yeah, and they've built up a lot of experience. That, and to be that successful, you have to been doing a lot of rational thinking. Uh, and it's you can trust yourself sometimes. And it doesn't mean flying blind. If you're talking about somebody who's always screwing up and they say, well, I have a gut feeling. It's like, well, maybe you should uh, stop and check your, check your emotions. Let's do one more question because we're almost at the two minute warning. Um, how, oh, this is coming from William on Zoom. How much do good intentions play a role in morality, especially if someone makes a decision based on either a false premise or inaccurate information, and yet they had good intentions? How do you evaluate that in a morality? Well, it depends on what it was these, what, what is your standard for evaluating good intentions? Uh, intention to do what? So the way that this is often, this idea of good intentions is often used is in debates, let's say about public policy. Uh, somebody says, well, this, um, let's say social welfare program has good intentions because it wants to get people, uh, wants to feed them, wants to take care of them when they're sick, et cetera. It just so happens that it doesn't work out. It so happens it disincentivizes people to work. And, and not only that, but it uh, creates a culture of dependency and busts the uh, budget and so forth. So people like that will often say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. But I think in many of these kinds of cases, you have to actually question whether the intentions are good. Is it, and this is a much, this is a, this is a much longer discussion and one that came up in part, I think in your uh, webinar of just uh, last week, was it? Uh, or yeah. the week before what about, to do about the poor. What, what to do about the poor. do about the poor. But I mean, I think there are a lot of people who propose policies uh, allegedly to help people where the intention isn't good, where where they want people to be dependent and they don't want people to live independently and they don't 
and, and they want to tear down the people who have achieved something for themselves. Uh, and they want them to be made to kind of worship at the altar of other people's need and suffering. And if that's the motivation, that is not a good intention. And it's not an accident that it paves the road to hell. So it's going to depend a lot on how you understand uh, what you take to be a good intention here. So we are at 1159. Um, so do we have some closing remarks? I think what I usually do at this point is just to remind people again about the, uh, about the webinar next week, which is Harry Binswanger's Why Capitalism. Join us again uh, Wednesday, 11 a.m. Pacific, and that's uh, 2 p.m. Eastern for yet another webinar. Otherwise, uh, please consider sending us other questions that you have that you think you might want us to address in future webinars. And I think that's all I have for today. Great. So, thanks, everyone, for coming. Thanks, Aaron. Yep. Bye, everyone. Bye.